0: February 2nd, 1976. One of our spies in the Armed Forces sends me a clipping from the Pacific edition of the Stars and Stripes, an authorized unofficial publication, the U.S. Armed Forces of the Pacific Command. And uh, here's a little quote. This is just a little clip here. It's from Antofagasta. It's a great name for a town, isn't it? Antofagasta. Antofagasta. Sounds like a new secret ingredient. Antofagasta. Atravagasta Chi, Pepito, a small monkey from Central America, was the neighborhood's mascot, Pepito, until a terrible moment. He stole and ate a sandwich spiced with hot chili pepper. Oh, Pepito, oh, Pepito. He went berserk, bit one person, nearly destroyed the contents of his master's house, and terrorized the entire neighborhood. The master's. The monkey's master, Claudio Reynoso, said the police arrested Pepito. They put the arm on the Pepito and sent him to the local zoo. And now Pepito's sitting there in the cage drinking a lot of water. And, uh, <laughs> and he's having himself a... I mean, now, wait a minute. Don't laugh. Now, listen. You guys laugh at this. And maybe you don't know what he is what he's going through, what he is suffering, Pepito. He ate his sandwich with Jillian. <laughs> now, just a minute now. I know exactly what he's talking about. Do, do any of you people... Uh, the thing about you people who live here in the East, you don't you don't really know much about uh, about the very gated ethnic quality of the world in which you live. You're laughing at the people, because most of you, the most spicy thing you have is a little granola in the morning. You don't know about the pizza. You know, one of the great things about, about living in an industrial area of, of uh, the country is that there's like 12 and a half million types of nationalities always in any industrial area. I've always felt sorry for a kid, you know, who grows up in Darien. Uh, you know, it's, uh, boy, that must be an exciting rich life. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I was growing up on the south side of Chicago. Stand down the south side of Chicago, uh, there's a uh, uh, we, you know, the, the term melting pot had no meaning at all because everybody I knew was, was like uh, different nationality. But no one thought of them as nationalities. They were just, uh, you know, Bolas, Geza, Schwartz. And they were all just various uh, kids. Nobody thought anything, you know, Bolas was Polish, okay? So it was Polish. The only thing you thought of him being Polish when you went to his house. And uh, his mother spoke hardly any English at all always wore the shawl over her head, see? Yeah, but I learned enough. Polish to ask uh, loudly, where's Boles? In Polish it's pronounced Bolek. I say, uh, you know, something, where's Bolek? In Polish, and she too. Uh, 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 I say, okay, okay, I'll be back. I'll come back later. Well, then <laughs> I would go over to Geza's house, Geza Now, what nationality is that? Geza Nemeth. Ah, oh, Geza. Geza Nemeth? Hungarian. And uh, so I would talk a little Hungarian when I go over to see Geza and i talk a little little Swedish when I go over to see Anderson. Yeah, they always had this anise bread. You know, Well, at that time, I had this this paper route. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of little little game, gimmicks you pull on a paper route. Uh, and my paper route, well, I'd start out at 6 o'clock, and maybe even earlier, 5.30 in the morning. I delivered the morning paper, the Chicago Tribune, and at night I would deliver the night tonight the night paper. See, it was the uh, Chicago Sun Times. I delivered the paper. No, it wasn't sometimes. It was the uh, uh, Herald American. That's right. I would deliver the Herald American, which was an, uh, an afternoon paper. So I had two two routes and different customers. Some guys got the morning paper and didn't get the afternoon paper. Other guys got the afternoon paper. They get the morning. Some guys got both of them. You know? And so every day I would go over to, to the place where we'd get our papers. Now I'm telling you this for a reason because, because I understand Pepito's problem. There's a thing happened one time that had to do with Pepito, which I will never forget. And my paper art was a kind of a very gated type paper art. It was a paper art that didn't just have a lot of houses in it. Like I would deliver the paper, say, for example, to the Shell station. Uh, the guy would set the paper. Uh, I also delivered the paper to uh, two and two grocery store. I'd drive you know, I'd m- my bike, and, and I would uh, ride past, and uh, they had a bread box or something out in the front. I threw a paper in there, see? Well, every day I would deliver to a lot of houses and all kinds of things. And then at the end of the route, my route was a big sort of horseshoe-shaped route, or if you prefer, a route. But it was more of a route than a route. Uh, it was a route in many ways. I was often routed. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah, because, uh, oh, you know, you learn a lot about humanity when you're trying to collect on your paper route. Uh, you really do. You know, every day, selflessly, you deliver the paper. And you come up Saturday to get the, you know, to get the few miserable shekels that uh, the, pay, the guy looks at you and says, what do you want? This is a I collected a paper. He says, I don't want a paper. Bam, he slams the door. He's been getting the paper all week. Right, that's one type. Uh, I'm not here to tell you about collecting for the paper. I'm telling you what happened to me so I understand Pepito. Pepito, the poor little, the poor little monkey that ate the sandwich with the peppers in it. And why he went for search. I, I know exactly why he went berserk. And so my route would start out, and it would start rather innocently. At it all houses. I'd throw the paper up on a porch, and then I would hit the shell station. I'd throw the paper up on the shell station there. And then I would go on down the street, and I'd go past the lumber yard. I could still see my run. I know I'd be, I'd be stopping around. You know, I, I can always fall back on that. You guys think you're pushing me around. Oh, no, I can fall back on that business. I was a damn good paper boy. And uh, i come to the lumber yard. And uh, this, this is a guy in the lumber yard, he used to always get the paper. So, but he says, you got to throw it in over the fence, because if you don't throw it over the fence, somebody will steal it. So I'd love to uh, hit the lumber yard. He had this big, high fence, see? And I used to cooling past on my Elgin bike. I, later, uh, I, I got really essential. I got a Schwinn. Yes, uh, I, I had Columbia chain tires on it. It was a Schwinn. Ever own a Schwinn bike? Schwinn. And uh, so I'm cooling along on my Schwinn bike. Now the reason I liked this Schwinn bike, I had a gear shift on it. You know, had <laughs> three speed, You know, oh, wow. So uh, I'd uh, you know, I'd throw it in a second. I'd go up the hill there, and then I would cool down the hill. And the lumberyard was at the bottom of the hill. It was always very exciting. See. And I would, I, would, uh, I would get this thing going real good, and then I would go coasting down this hill, the wind blowing at 5.30 in the morning, and uh, the shot over the fence was a side on shot because he was away from my throwing arm. Then a right-handed tosser, and the, the, this lumberyard would be on my left, and I'd come whistling down this, this hill right next to the crew. So I'd whistle down, and as i get next to the gravel driveway, I'd let this baby go sidearm, underhand, beautiful toss up over the fence, you know, and i hear it bouncing down there on the, on the porch of the office there, and then I'd go, I'd make the left-hand turn, and I would cut down to Arizona Street. It was always a dramatic moment at the base of that turn on the Schwinn. And then I would go past three more houses, I would turn right, and it was another grocery store. And I'm working my way through, the, through this this uh, this paper route, you know, and after you had done this thing for like a year, you knew it just absolutely cold, man, and you could tell when they changed the flower pot on the porch. You know, you, know, you get to know every house, and you know, you know, and, and you knew every dog intimately, every dog. Uh, about one third of the way into my route, right after I would pass the lumber yard, and I would go past these three houses, and I would go past an, uh, a standard oil of Indiana station, they also got it down there. I would go down past the grocery store and I would make a right. There was a great big gabled house with these people named Swisher. Uh, C.B. Swisher. C.B. Swisher had this great big yellowish kind of house and it was set back. It had a lawn, it had a big uh, big hedge all around it and it had one of these uh, one of these little gates, you know, in the hedge there uh, with this, uh, you know, little wire type gate with a little iron pipe and all that stuff. And I used to, boy, I used to wait for this one because... As I would approach, I would see a rustling in the bushes, and yeah, uh, <laughs> I'd see the bushes where they'll See, and that—that that mother used to wait for me. They—they they, it was an Airedale. Now I—I I, uh, they don't have Airedales anymore. This is a dog which is now extinct. There are no Airedales. You notice that? And rightly so. Mean, uh, and they have big square jaws, and they have—they uh, have eyes that look like they're made out of marble. And uh, wiry hair, you could, you could, I tell you, you could actually remove paint with the hide of a, of an airedale. It's wiry hair, see? And so, big, tall, knobby knees, great big knees, his knees look like, like, like marbles, you know, very big knees, and he had the he was all skinny, but tall, and and scruffy looking, you know, it's like, like chunks of his hair were formed. This is the way air look, like, you know, they always look like, uh, you either should throw a lot of uh, chlorine over them, or Clorox or something, you know, they're fluffy. You know, you've seen them. So I would come cooling around down there. It's every morning. It's about quarter after six. And I'm making the big turn. I'm halfway through. This marks the halfway point of my route. And from here on in, it was homeward bound, see. Uh, back to the barn, you know. So I'm making the turn. And every morning, this thing would be See, I see the weeds, but then I see the, the hedges rustling, see. And, the, and he would run along the hedge inside so i couldn't see him see and i'd see the sedge's white waving a little i could tell what he was by what was wiggling see and sure enough just as i'm about to throw this thing he would wait See, he knew my most vulnerable moment any paper boy's most vulnerable moment is when he is arm extended about to throw you agree after the throw you can defend yourself before the throw you can defend yourself but when you're starting to swing the underarm swing with the paper you are absolutely at, at the mercy of anything. Well, he used to wait. I'd see those two little eyeballs looking at him, <laughs> looking out of the head, and showing sure up. I'd start i tried to trick him. You know, i tried to trick him by by over my head real quick like that, and trying an underhanded shot. You know, but he would see my arm move, so he he would come all of a sudden. He'd boop. He'd come bursting out. And he would just, you know, that kind of frantic yell. I, I started start pumping like man, and man, i bet say about three times out of five, he would get my right ankle. You know, just like old war wounds. You know, you hear about these guys with the old Civil War wounds? Well, some mornings, you know, when I come in here, I walk around, like, there, especially when it's rainy and cold out. My old paper boy wounds come back, and I could feel my right ankle start to ache Where that crummy, rotten Airedale. You interested in what his name was? Why should I tell you what his name was? Scruffy. And he was Scruffy. I mean, sounds cute, doesn't he? He was about as cute as as an impacted wisdom tooth, you know? And so uh, he used to come out and he grab my right ankle. He always grabbed the ankle in the heart. You know, at, at that point, I he, he, uh, he, yeah, he had cuts and bruises. And one time he tore a tennis shoe off. And so, uh, you know, he just grabbed the ankle every time. Well, then, of course, uh, this is what sets man apart from the beast. Which reminds me, this is W.O.R., New York. <laughs> now, wait a minute now. It was man that reminded me of W.O.R., not beast. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, oh, you want to hear more about the and the uh, scruffy, oh, scruffy, yeah. Well, man is an infinitely adaptable creature. And the one thing that sets man apart from the other creatures is that he can vary his M.O. What is it, the M.O.? You've seen enough bad cop shows on TV to know what an M.O., isn't it? Modus operandi, or method of operation, for those of you out in Staten Island. But, uh... <laughs> That's the way it do something, huh? Okay, that's better. And now, now, Christ, many a guy, many a many a cop uh, will tell you that uh, that the way they catch most thieves is, you know, some guy that's a that's a criminal type is because they tend to do it the same way, you know. So uh, if every time you pull your job, you know, you lose a ballpoint fountain pen at the at the place with your name on it, that becomes your M.O. And it's not before long, they'll, you know, throw the net over you. You know, they'll catch us. Aha! The ballpoint burglar has struck again. Well, all right, so that's an M.O. But the thing about man is that he can bury his M.O., whereas the lion does not. No, no, the lion kills the same way every time. He does not say, this time I'm going to mug him. No, no, he, uh, he may do pretty good, you know, getting a, a zebra if he says to his fellow lion, Hey, hey, Simba. Yes, what do you want, Leo? Uh, Simba, look, I'm getting tired of chasing Zebras. What I'm going to do is dig a hole and cover it up with weeds, and the Zebras going to come and throw in the hole. See, like that. I'll trap him. Well, that would be one hell of a lion, wouldn't it? But he can't do this. See, He does not vary his M.O., and uh, he just continues to bat his head out against the Zebras and, you know, doing the best he can. But man is different. So after about two or three weeks, I realized that Splunky had a, an M.O. Now what his M.O. was, <laughs> he would he would you know he would wait. He knew he sensed. You know, have you noticed dogs can sense when somebody's coming for blocks away, and he would sense I'm coming. See, so uh, yeah, all they know the time, everything. Dogs, but the trouble with them is they still have an inflexibility. So he would hide in the corner of the hedge. And then when he would hear my Schwinn bike approach in second gear, he would start running along the hedge parallel to my path, see? And then just before I got to the gate, he knew at that point, at the gate, at that point, I would throw sidearm, just that sidearm, right, It was a right-hand shot, sidearm like that underhand sidearm shot, up on the porch of the house, which was right opposite the gate, you see. Okay, at that point, he knew that just before I came to the gate, my arm was ready to go, and I'd start to throw, and he would come popping out of the weeds, he'd come right through that hedge. Bam! <laughs> and the next thing I know, I've got, you know, I've got this 400-pound monster hanging on my ankle again, right? Okay. Always the same. He did the same thing. Well, now, that was a simple thing, see, when you're dealing with one of the lesser beasts. This is how I get along with the sales department. Here. You know, you, you, learn, you learn these tricks. When you're dealing with the lesser beats, you know that its simplest little change in the routine confuses them, totally confuses them. Takes them months to figure out the new routine. So instead of instead of waiting till I got to the gate to throw this thing, you know what I did? I just halfway down the hedge, I would shoot a long sidearm underarm swoop deflection shot. Wait go like that. And then at that point, I would turn quickly left and cut across the street and he'd come, Rawr! and running out of the leash, nothing. And snap snapping away and my ankle's 50 feet away. And he's red He's really his eyeballs are red. And of course, i very confused. Well, I did this about three or four days. And uh, three or four days, he's confused. He keeps trying the same thing. Well, at the end of the third or fourth day, it finally you know, so through that dim Airedale brain, what I was doing. <laughs> and he, he figured he's going to, you know, he's going to take it head on his time. So instead of waiting for me to throw, oh, he caught me the first day, yes. This is where man varies from the thought, though. And for the lesser beasts of the field, he, he'll catch you the first day. You may get eaten up by a lion the first time, but the second time you'll get him between the eyes, right? <laughs> well, you're 30.06, and that'll comprise him. So, uh, Nevertheless, I come whistling up to the, to the to the switcher house. You know, I say, oh, I'm going to get old. I'm going to get old come Where do I get it this time again? sick. instead he comes popping out instantly. Ah, he's got oh oh. You know, just about the time i read he's got me ready ankle again. Okay, I'll fix you. And then it's the point that I really begin to develop my let's say my true counter offensive. Up to that point, I had always worn tennis shoes on the route, right? Well, uh, were you, uh, were you involved, uh, all kids all go through the work shoes scene, right? When you wear the big, heavy, ankle-high work shoes, you know, the kind you get down at the Army Navy store, right? So I had a pair of work shoes, great big babies, you know, the kind that are sort of orange-colored, yellow, you know, with a thick, uh, rubber soles? Three, boy, they weigh eight pounds apiece. And so I put on my work shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Covered my ankle, see. Not only that, I was ready for that little old varmint, you know. When he came out, he just ah, and he would always leap, see. He would just leap. He'd leave his front feet off the ground and make a grab at my ankle again. The mo caught it. I knew exactly the ankle he would come out of the weeds at, because he always went for my. He did not go for my, shall we say, posterior. He did not go for my calf. He went for my ankle. Always the same ankle. So this day he comes rolling out, and I am ready for him. Just as I see the weeds part, I take my right foot off of the pedal, and I catch him with a shot right on the chops, right in the middle of the leaf. Wait a minute, it was a magnificent. It was just—have you ever seen Hank Aaron catch one on the fat side of the bat? You notice how effortless he makes it look. Timing. That's all timing, wrist action. It's timing, coordination, and risk. No power much in that. You notice know, that? Just pop like that. Shoo, out it goes. Yeah, Roger Maris was like this. Time. risk action. It's all coordination. Well, that first day, I caught Scruffy on the right chop with my work shoe. He's in midair. I caught him just as he's. And the combined weight of his leap and my shoe, and the fact that I was rolling forward on the Schwinn about 20 miles an hour. Fantastic. He a pow like that. He turned over in midair, went backwards over the hedge. He landed on the back of his head, went around the side of the house, and down into the cellar, screaming every inch and away. Well, I don't have to tell you from that day on I looked forward to hitting the Swisher house. Because for at least Three days, poor old Scruffy kept doing the same move, and I kept catching him on the same shot. Until today, we're <laughs> right, not going to bother you with this. You want to hear about the pizza. Yes, well, all right, this is the whole point of this. Now, I, I don't know whether many of you recognize when a person has a delivery route. Now, I don't know how many of you have delivered anything. But the delivery route itself becomes as familiar as the back of your hand. And you work out all kinds of little inner routines that don't have anything to do exactly with delivering. It's just shortcut here, shortcut there, and you see the same person in the same corner every morning, and you know when the geraniums have been changed, and you gets to be very familiar with it. Well, at the end of my route, when I would come sweeping on back down around Kennedy Street, they had a big, you know, big street. This was a, uh, a business street. So it was the last shot on my route, and I was heading back, for the barn, the headquarters, see, where I would turn in my sack and all that stuff. I'd come swishing down the street, and I would deliver to about five stores and about 18 taverns, taverns, bars to you, joints, right? And they had all kinds of great names, (laughs) Yeah, you know, I could, you know, Al and Eddie's. He wrote every morning, Al and Eddie. He's never open. Al and Eddie's always open in the afternoon. and I would throw the paper up against the door and go on. But there was one place, the Bluebird, that was open every morning because these guys catered to the steel workers. Now, the Bluebird was a very special type of tavern, and every tavern around it was special in its own way, see. But I would come down, and I'd pass the pool room, I'd go past the hardware store, and then, then I, would, I would go past this launderette and then the bluebird. Now, the bluebird was always open. The bartender would come in there every morning at about, uh, oh, it must have been about 7 o'clock. And uh, he would just clean up the joint. He was not open for business until 8. But his door would be open, and he would be in there mopping up the bar. You know, and he's got this mop, and he's working away there. And uh, all the cases are piled up. They made the delivery of the beer and the, the ginger ale and junk for the day. And this great big bartender was always in there with this white, the big white apron on. He's cleaning up the joint. And I would come, pulling cool him past. And I, would, I would just sort of, just drift in through the door. You know, when you're really good on your bike, you're really, you know, it's, it's part of your body. You know, whoosh, I make this turn in. And I would throw the paper uh, back onto one of the tables. And uh, almost every morning he was saying, Hey, Ken, and I'd say, you, know, if you want some popcorn? That's okay. And he used to have on the bar, he had these, little plastic bowls full of popcorn and uh, stuff like potato chips and he'd have a and he'd be filling them in the morning because these guys would get off the ship you know, steel workers work shifts work and uh, the guys that would get off at 8 o'clock in the morning would come running like hell in there at 10 minutes after 8 see they're in there and to them this is the middle of the day you got to remember these guys were not drinking early in the morning this was like uh, you know a guy stopping by for a martini at the 517 on his way to wilton right so they would come roaring in there, and these guys, did. A, they, they drink only one thing, a shot in a beer. It's all said in one word, shot in a beer. See, or once in a while, if the guy is really esoteric, he would say, hey, uh, hey, Al, give me a Boilermaker, okay? So uh, a Boilermaker is a shot in a beer, and he would have about ten of them lined up back in the bar already. So buy whiskey, and uh, he would have uh, get up the glasses lined up for the beer, and uh, the minute these guys would come roaring in, he's ready, see? But the one thing you got to know about this, this was a Polish bar. Okay. So there was little, little, a slight variation. Now, there was, a, there, was a, there was an Italian bar down the street. They had different stuff. Uh, there was a Hungarian bar down the street. It was different, too. But the Polish bar had one thing on it. In the back, by the cash register, back at the bar, had this great big pitcher. It was like a great big glass jar, is what it was. Have you ever seen those glass jars that are shaped like a, a barrel, fake barrel, like a big top on it, see, with sort of cloudy liquid in it? Well... Uh, <laughs> this this thing had this had this stuff in it. Was great! Every morning I'd see him in there, and, and once in a while he would be taking things out of this thing and putting them into the ice box in the back. And it smelled fantastic. Smell. Oh boy, what a you know what a terrific smell. Now most of the bars around, there, when you come in at eight o'clock in the morning, they smell like old used beer. You know what I'm talking about? Old used beer and disinfectant. Disinfectant. It's from the you know, bars tend to have cute names on the jars. you know, like his or hers. You know, the stags and <laughs> the cows and that kind of stuff. See? so uh cute smell the bar smell, but boy, this one was different. It smelled a fantastic smell. And he'd have that big jaw. Sometimes it would be filled right to the top, sometimes it would be filled halfway. And every morning he's behind the bar when I would come in. He's mopping up. And one morning, I come in there, see, and I used to sneak him on all the time. Whenever, When he didn't even offer me any, any uh, pretzels, at least I'd grab a handful of pretzels see, when he's not looking. That's all the paper now. Well, you know, he knew. And uh, I'd get back on the bike and go. I looked forward to that that thing every morning, going into the Bluebird and grabbing some pretzels or some potato chips or some popcorn and, you know, getting on out. But that was that popcorn. You look forward to this thing. Well, on this particular morning, which I shall never forget, which um, gives me, let's say, a feeling of more than average empathy for Pepito. Understand what Pepito did, now, how he felt, and why he went for search. Now, if he had a machine gun, he probably would have blasted the whole neighborhood, right? So uh, I, I, came, I came into the tavern this morning. It was in the bluebird Bluebirds. I come whistling in, and the bartender is not behind the bar this morning. And I can hear some banging around going way back in the back of the bar. It was one of these long, narrow buildings, like, you know, in the back there was a kind of a dark place in the back, and they had a couple of pool tables back there, and a jukebox, and, and uh, a telephone in the back. You know, you know, it's, you know, a few tables sitting back there. And he's in the back there doing something, and I can hear him banging around with cases and stuff and bottles rattling. So I hollered out a house, Paper boy! Okay, yeah, put it on the bar, it's all right. The first time I had ever been in there and he wasn't around. He was in the back there. They had like a storage room back there where they kept empties and stuff. That's where he was. When I saw my chance, it was this great big jar, fantastic jar full of this cloudy liquid with these green and red things floating in. Well, now, they really look good. Uh, and I had, had many times, we had gone to an, an Italian restaurant and they had these pimentos. You know what those pimentos are like? They're really great. You know those, those roasted, sweet pimentos? And that's what they looked like. They were sort of red and floating in there. They had this fantastic smell. And there were spices floating in there with them. And slices of onion floating in this this cloudy milky liquid. So he's in the back, and I holler down, "Okay!" And he says, uh, "Hey, John, you want some popcorn? Grab all you want." I say, "Okay." So I reach into the bar, and I quickly unscrew the top of the thing. I take the top all That's it. I reach into the I reach into the jar, see, all the way up to my up to my wrist sort of a cloudy, milky liquid, and I grab a handful of this stuff, whip it on, it, dripping all over the place, I put the top back on, and I, I quickly take the bottle of it, which is when I, die, I quickly wipe off the juice, run back out, get on my bike, and I start rolling, you know, down, rolling down the street, and I got a handful of this stuff. Oh, smell, see. Well, now, I had always done it this way. I would get on my bike. This is where your M.O. will kill you sometimes, friends. My M.O. prior to that moment, had always been, I would get on my bike, I would start going, steering it with one hand, and then I'd make about five big pedals, get the bike rolling good, and now I'm going on past the A&P, and I would just open my mouth, and, you know, in would go to popcorn, or in would go to pretzels, the, pretzel, the mouth. So, so i get down there by the A&P, and p and i go, what's that? But for one brief instant, one brief instant, I, I I sat there for a second, I could smell the spices, I could taste them, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> I can't breathe, I can't breathe, it's going all the way down into my feet, my eyeballs are busted, it's like i would taken a gigantic full what plug of pure electricity? Have you ever wonder what electricity tastes like I took my bike wobbling. and down I went off. And for about, I would say, 15 minutes, my entire head felt like it was asleep. You ever had your foot fall asleep? You know that tingling? You couldn't feel anything? My head was asleep. My throat burnt all the way down into my gut. And I had one desire, one desire, only one. Was to get a drink of water. And I went down the street and I go into the shell station and they had this, this nozzle and I turn the nozzle on and I take a great big gulp of cold water and it, oh, a big gulp of cold water and oh, oh my God! It starts again! It's even worse! I learned one secret of Polish peppers. Don't ever drink cold water after you've eaten a Polish pepper. It comes on twice as hard. And it was that moment that I formed a lifelong respect for the Polish. I would see these Polish steel workers drinking beer and eating those peppers popping them in like you would eat peanuts. Just beep, beep, beep like that. Tell you, the poles are strong people. I would never cross anything with them. Anybody that can eat peppers like that is a mighty man. And it wasn't until maybe three or four o'clock that afternoon that my taste began to return. I could quickly taste it and for at least three days after it, every time I would drink a glass of milk or water or Coke or anything, I was feeling burning. And I could hear the flames of hell snapping and crackling down there deep in my gut. Oh, what a smell. But anytime you go into a Polish bar, you see that big jar back of that bar there next to the cash register, you see those Polish beer drinkers knocking down the makers, popping those peppers. You know that you're in, in the presence of true strength, true power, man. Power. So that concludes tonight's salute to Pepito. The poor little monkey that ate the sandwich with the peppers. And I just how you feel, Pepito. Had there been a zoo around, I think I'd been put into a cage that night. I was ready to kill W.O.Y. New York. You stay tuned for In Conversation, okay?